Hi, welcome to the RSP Cast. This is an episode of Scout Talk. I'm Matt Waldman, in case you forgot, because in April or March, you know, I haven't really done many podcasts um, while I'm putting together the rookie scouting portfolio. But today it is a long overdue show. That's how I would put this, because I have a guest who I just enjoy thoroughly getting a chance to talk to every year when we're at the Senior Bowl in Mobile. And I can thank Russ Landy really for the for the connect there because whenever Russ, um, he has folks that he enjoys spending time with and respects, and he'll and every year he has a dinner at this little Italian restaurant in in Mobile and invites pe- people there. And every year, Rick Saratella and I, Rick Saratella of Draft Bible, we get to you know chatting and having a really good time. And and I was fortunate enough to be on Rick's show with Russ earlier this week. And for those of you who might be unaware of Rick, Rick works, you know, or owns and creates the NFL Draft Bible, which has been around forever. And we're going to learn a little bit more about the great NFL Draft Bible and his his scouting guide that is out and where you can get it and talk. We're going to talk shop about scouting. We're going to talk shop about players. This should be a fantastic show. Rick, it's an honor. Thank you for joining me today. Matt, I mean, listen, I, I don't really get too pumped up for show appearances, but this is a, as excited as I've been to do a show. And uh, yes, it's the Greybeards Club. And uh, we are uh, uh, VIP privileged card holders of the Russ Landy inner circle. But we've got to make up for lost time because we weren't down in Mobile this year. There was no NFL scouting combine. So we've got to do it virtually. I know, man. I, I Though I do miss like the 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 red and white checkered tablecloth that we're usually like doing this around whether it's see here i thought you were gonna say the red and white wine i i'm good with that too (laughs) (laughs) now we're keeping it real Um, (laughs) but you know the one of the we get so hyped about talking about players and talking about what we saw and and football stories one of the things I just don't know anything really about you other than just reading a little bit, you know, from like the more like the press, the PR type of stuff that we put out. What's your background and how'd you get started in all of this? Yeah. And, you know, it's funny. We have a, a new guy on board at the NFL Draft Bible, Zach Petra, and, you know, he's a younger fella in the business. And I was explaining to him, he's like, yeah, can you believe so-and-so draft site is no longer existing? Hey, did you see so-and-so draft site is gone? It's like, dude, it's like a two to three year average lifespan because people get into this business. They realize how much work it entails. They do the mathematics. You don't have to be a, 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 a math expert to do the math and realize like, hey, you're probably making less than the minimum wage when you add up the hours and you, you see the, 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 the bank account like it's a tough gig. And so people don't realize like it's harder to be an NFL scout than it is an NFL player. And when the CFL and XFL were in existence, there was only 750 jobs. And I think our good friend Russell Landy came up with that number. And you think about it, like between the draft picks and undrafted free agents, there's probably about a thousand, 1200 guys who come into the league. And then even harder than being an NFL scout is a media scout because you know, outside of NFL Network, outside of ESPN, like if you're just trying to make money off of the NFL draft business, uh, you're going to be in trouble, my friends. <laughs> and so, like, you know, it, it's a tough deal and it takes a lot of years of perseverance, family support, ramen noodles, PB&Js and all that good stuff. And so, like, for me, 
you know, right place, right time in a good way and a bad way. So I graduated in 2002 and my first job was at the Yes Network, the Yankees Entertainment and Sports Network. And it was the first graduating class after 9-11. So, you know, just like a lot of college students are struggling today with the economy, I, I watched all my friends graduate college. And back in the day, they six-figure digits, uh, jobs right out of college. I'm like, hey, this is great. 9-11 happens, and hey, here I am interning, driving from New Jersey to Stanford, Connecticut each and every day uh, to produce, help produce the Mike and the Mad Dog show. And then on the weekends, I would work at the NFL Now with Mike Francesa, which was one of the only nationally syndicated shows in the country at the time. And like the commute was so crazy. I mean, you talk about New York, New Jersey traffic. Like I got to drive to New York to get to New Jersey. It's just full of traffic. And so like I would literally sleep on the producer's couch in his office because mm. I was there seven days a week. By the time I drove home, I literally would go home, get a couple hours of sleep and have to wake up and drive back. So I would literally just sleep on the couch. And I did that for seven months without making a penny. Yeah. <laughs> so like wow. but you know and and it goes back to i see a lot of debates about paid internships versus unpaid internships and like i didn't make a cent but i would not change that for the world because of the connections i made the experiences i learned the different hats i got to wear people that i met that would hire me down the road in the future and so to me like the payback was on the come around and so i just want to encourage people that like a lot of folks frown or turn their nose up at an unpaid internship to me it was the best thing that ever happened for me now not everybody can afford to do that i get it but if you are able to do it like to me it was incredible so here i am working at yes network and the headquarters is in the chrysler building lexington avenue new york city as you know matt the the draft was held in the in the theater at madison square garden so here i am I had always been that guy in the back of the classroom in high school. I'm doing like scouting reports for Keyshawn Johnson. And, uh, you know, Zach Thomas was the guy, you know, back in high school where I was a Broncos fan growing up. And so I remember we needed a middle linebacker and like, I'm like, Oh man, this Zach Thomas, I can't wait. Denver's got to take him. And here comes Denver's first round pick and they bypass him. I'm like, dude, what are you doing? Like Zach Thomas, two, three. And I think they took Ashley Lalay out of Hawaii. And so, you know, and then, you know, Zach Thomas comes back around. And I'm like, man, I just love this process. I just love this stuff. And um, so when I was at the Yes Network, I was like, hey, you know, the draft is right down the road. I'm like, you guys don't have any NFL draft coverage on your website. And at the time, they were trying to do all sports, not just Yankees. And they still are. So I was like, hey, why don't you send me to the draft? And so the NFL draft Bible was born on yesnetwork.com back in 2002. And I know Look you could you appreciate creating your own space there like that. Love the initiative, <laughs> man. That's well, fantastic. That's, <laughs> well, that, and that's the other thing. Like too many people wait for opportunities to come, right? Yeah. Like you've got to create your own opportunities in this business. And so uh, here I am. And, and, and so like I'm doing the, uh, the the draft bible on yes network and i i know you'll love this story matt because back in the day uh there was no such thing as spell check right and i guess <laughs> like you know <laughs> like i think grammarly is the big thing right. nowadays but like we didn't have all these tools back then so here i am fresh out of college i submit my first draft bible like ha- hand it to the editor and i'm all you know chest puffed out like thinking i'd accomplish something great he's like dude analysis was awesome like you've got great perspective he's like just one thing like you spelt wide receiver wrong every single time 
He's like, you reverse the E and the I. And I'm like, oh my God. Like, talk about embarrassing, right? And so, like, again, back in the day, you had to manually edit every single He's like, dude, like, you're making my life a nightmare over here, like, with these edits. And so that's how the draft Bible was born. And, but it took about 10 years as a producer in New York City working the back. Like, my perspective comes from the backdoor media angle where I got my start in the media business. I was producing like the Tiocho show with Chad Ochocinco and Terrell Owens and doing all these great things. And I, I eventually took the, 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 the faithful, uh, the, the lunge, right. The leap of faith. And I was working, uh, you know, office space in a cubicle on the 39th floor across the street from Madison square garden and doing all this. And I'm, I'm like, dude, like, I'm doing wearing all these hats and I went into the owner's office and I said, listen, Joe, I love you to death, but you're out here in LA, you're out in your homes in the Hamptons, you're having all these fun times. I'm like, I'm running your company for you. Like, brother, you've got to do a little bit something for me here <laughs> <You know? laughs> to keep me around. And I remember like they had to think about it. It took about a week or two. They came back, they called me in the office. They're like, here's what we're going to do for you. We're going to give you an extra $20 a week. And I said, I'm doing, I'm doing the math. I'm sitting there, Matt. And this is like, you know, 10, 12 years ago. I'm saying, well, that doesn't even cover my phone bill. Right. <laughs> like, you know, I'm like, Hey, you know what guys, I'll see you later because if I'm going to be putting in all these hours and, and I work, you know, a lot of hours, I said, I'm going to, I'm going to sink or swim on my own time and I'll see you later. And so like about two, circa 2010, I just left the corporate world, left the cubicle life. You know, you could just envision me smashing the printer in the open fields, you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like I'm out of here. Yeah. And so like the old adage that goes like, hey, we're, we're, we're the kind of people that'll work 80 hours a week so that we don't have to work 40 hours a week. If you, oh, you yeah. kind of let that sink in, that's what we're about. Yeah, I can. I'll share a similar story because I love it. And I haven't probably shared it in this kind of chronological way before. But yeah, I mean, for me, it was, I had a, I didn't know what I wanted to do early on because of being a a music student. Um, and then I realized I didn't want to do that because the amount of time put into it and where I was at with it and what I was getting, was going to get out of this great program I was in, wasn't going to match all up. And I didn't want to be selling insurance, trying to do gigs that I didn't want to do and didn't feel like I was at a place where I was really getting the most out of this program. So I thought maybe I would still play again, but I, I ended up not doing that for a long time. And I actually just picked up my horn again about six, about seven or eight months ago, which has been an absolute joy for me. And I've had the time now to like practice every day, but before that, you know, I went back to school, I transferred, you know, I was living in Athens, Georgia, and just trying to kind of figure out some things, you know, and I knew I, I had some things to figure out as a person, and where I wanted to go and what I do. And, and, you know, I was in college trying a lot of different things. I tried the journalism track for a while. And I met a former Sports Illustrated writer, who told me like all these things that I wanted to hear as a musician, um, in terms of like, within like my first couple of weeks, writing for the school newspaper at the University of Georgia. And he used to, he would grade like all the writers every day. He was like a writing coach and he taught magazine writing. 
um, at the university's journalism school. And he sat me down after a month and was like, I'm getting you an internship with like the Sacramento Bee or with some of the nice sports pages in this country. I think you have a real future for this. Um, and just told me all these things I wanted to hear as a musician. And it just pissed me off. Like it was like, cause I, I wanted to hear that as a musician and I was nowhere in that class to be able to do that at that time. And I heard it about something I really just didn't care about, you know, like, they, I, I remember showing up to the newspaper and saying, I want to write. And they're all like giving me like the big timer thing, which is understandable because they're like, we don't know who you are and we're students. We've been here for two or three years. Well, certainly you can, we'll give you an article to string for. And if we think you're any good, maybe you'll work your way up to doing an assignment. And I'm like, I'm thinking the same thing. Like, okay, sure. I'll do whatever. And a week later I was made, I was made a paid, um, I was paid a paid staffer covering the Bulldogs practices every day. And I hadn't even, the first thing I wrote wasn't even anything about sports. But by the end of the week, I was like in the place I wanted to be covering the football team, like practices every day. And within a month he was doing this. And then like by the end of the quarter, I quit. Like I, I, I was, I wasn't ready for hearing all that. And it kind of angered me. I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I ended up, taking a job that turned into like a part-time school job, turned into like a full-time job by the time I graduated school and then ended up being a career for like 10, 12 years. And so I'm, I'm working out of Athens, but directing this, the being a director of a division that covered like 70 or 80 branches of this 10,000 person co company and making good money, but miserable just miserable like because and then I was doing a little freelance writing here and there and and I got into fantasy football and all of that but at at a certain point um my job changed to the point where they were laying people off and they laid off my boss who'd been there for 35 years and he sat and told me he goes they want to keep you but they're thinking about where they want to put you because you were really great in operations as a manager um but this quality stuff while they need it they kind of want to use you to travel around the country like two weeks out of every month to like work with the operations managers on helping them like really get more productive, but do it the right way. And so, but I realized in that situation that I was going to be in one of those deals where no one was going to really be like account. I was, no one was going to be accountable to me in that role, which meant that if they didn't do anything and they didn't listen to any of that stuff, I'm going to be on the hook for what they did, but they're not going to be accountable for me when they're not doing it. So it was like, and then the travel and there was, and I was in one of these situations where, you know, I was, I was in a long-term relationship and that ended around the same time as this was all going on. And, you know, I let her and I, I let her and her kids at that point, they're my kids in, in, in spirit. Like they're, they're my family, even though they weren't my kids from, you, you know, from conception but um but at that time I let them all have everything in the house and just when they moved out like that I had bought the house before we were all together so I I'm 35 I have like no furniture other than a bed and I kept the cats that they kept bringing home so I'm in this house like 35 years old in a college town with seven cats a computer and two of the cats were mine. The rest were like the kids kept bringing them home. And I'm like, no, like we got to stop. This is like getting insane. And so, so we're doing this and I'm like, and then I'm like, 
about to lose this job or have to take this job and do these other things. And I took a job at UGA and it was for 55% less money than what I was making. Like, and they had to sign off. They had to get like three people above my boss to sign off to get the salary I was making, which I hadn't made in like 10 years before, you know? And it was just like, and I was like between the, I was doing freelance writing, doing like ad copy for um, a high school friend of mine who had her own like design, graphic design company that had copywriting services. So I was getting paid as like a, uh, you know, freelancer doing that. And then I was doing getting paid doing fantasy football, you know, per article at that time. And I, and I had started the RSP in 2005 because I was like, I had this whole idea about which we talked about on your show and my readers and my listeners know about anyway. And, and then I got this job and I was running, I was managing a um, bulk mail facility at the university of Georgia where we basically printed up brochures and put the names and addresses on brochures and flyers and boxes and worked out of the, the mail area for the entire university and I was doing that for about a year before I hooked on with my mentor who told me all that stuff in the beginning and was at that point now editing the business school magazine. And I ended up writing for that and balancing doing the RSP while doing all of that. And like you said, you feel like a rickshaw driver basically with the amount of salary that you're going to get out of this and remembering just like, Sleep was like crazy. I met my wife during all this time, which was even crazy enough. And I remember she was an entrepreneur, so she got it, you know. And like, I just was going to say when I heard you telling this story, I'm thinking, I've met your wife once. And it was like literally a 30 second, hello, how are you? But I could see how this setup was going and it looked very familiar to me in a lot of ways. And I was about, and I was going to say, bless Samantha, because I know that if you're married, that that woman's pretty damn special. For you to be doing what you're doing and her to be bought in in the way that she is, because I know with my wife, like I met people and and we'd go, I'd go out with people and and I couldn't meet anybody the way I look right now, but like I met somebody, you know, I'd meet people and it was like I'd explain what I'm doing and what's going on and I could just see like the light go out of their eyes, you know, it was just like you could just see that. That was not the trip or the road. And I remember telling my wife, I'm like, I've got, I work here doing this. I took this huge pay cut. I've got this going on. You know, I'm writing for this magazine. And then on top of that, I I write for fantasy football. That's growing. I've got this game that my friend and I, that I, I write with, who has this idea for this thing called Daily Fantasy. We actually came out with a site before DraftKings and missed the boat. Like we literally had a site before DraftKings and and um, FanDuel, um, and I'm glad. Kind of, I mean, I'm sorry, Mike, but I'm kind of glad it worked out the way it did. Is uh, I wish it worked out for him better than than it because he was sunk more into it than I was, um, and I wish it worked out for him. But it worked out the way it did for a reason. But I remember my wife just being like, "Yeah, I get it." But for years, you go through that and that whole dues paying thing. It's like you're right about the internships. You just have to, you have to understand, like if you, sometimes you have to look at it and say, I'm getting the experience I'm getting from this, the connections I'm making out of this, what I'm learning about how the industry works is more important 
than the money if I can figure out a way to swing it. And not everyone's going to be able to swing that, even if you're younger than 35 years old and you're taking a huge pay cut and a risk to do this. But I remember sitting in my, I remember sitting at home like my first year and I had already turned down a gig from Roto World at the time. And they were, and I was going to work for Greg um, Rosenthal with Evan Silva. He and I were going to be like peers working together on the ground floor of this Roto World project. And they were going to, they were talking about paying me full time eventually. And I was going to get um, a salary that would be full time there that would probably be similar to what I was making at this, the school. And I turned it down because I had this draft guide idea that I was working on a year into. And I remember Greg. After the second time they came to me after I turned it down the next year, he was like, you could write for our draft guy. Like he was confused. And I get why he was confused. Like he's like, why is this 35 year old guy going to turn down like the, like the safe bet, you know, to do this thing. And I remember turning it down and then being in my empty house and the TV being on Sunday night football. And on halftime, I see Greg Rosenthal and I'm going, I better fucking make this thing work. Because, <laughs> because if I because if I don't, this is gonna be so, I'm gonna remember this moment for the rest of my life. Like this thing better work. So it's suffice to say, I'm just saying I can relate to you completely, Rick, when it comes to how how this is, and and I love hearing your story. You know, in terms of what you had to do to hustle and the and and really get that stuff out there. It's the blood, sweat, and tears throughout the years. And there's so many valuable learning experiences that uh, folks can take away of everything you just ran through. But the perseverance, the sacrifice, the belief in yourself, the fear factor of getting over the unknown, but going back to the family and having a significant other that can tolerate slash understand the business. And that is so huge and monumental, but from a 30-second snapshot of what you got a chance to meet samantha you're dead on yeah and it wouldn't be possible to have someone like that in in, in your life to that didn't get it. it it just wouldn't work out yeah and so like you know when i first met her i was still going through some bumpy times and uh having to wait tables in between time or in the meantime to make ends eat and so make ends meet and so like hey the in-laws still don't like me. They still don't believe in me. Like, you know, it doesn't matter if I'm on Sports Illustrated, ESPN, NFL Network. Like, they're just not going to believe it, right? Because yeah. when they met me, I, w- I was waiting tables. Yeah. And so, like, hey, we we did what we had to do. And we moved around the country until we've gotten to the point now where, like, hey, now that the fruit of your hard labor starts to pay off. But, yeah, I mean, like, you know, we, we struggled for many, many years and, and like, you know, again, it's like people see the the glitz and the glamour and they see us talking here, chopping it up, having a good time, sharing some laughs. But I guarantee you not, folks, like between me and Matt, chances are it's a 50-50 chance after this show ends, one of us is going to be doing data entry. Like, you know, like there's so much work that gets needs to be done that's so tedious and like people just don't want to do it and they don't realize it until they get into the business. And we talked about it on my show a little bit, but like, People think they want to work in this business until they really get that opportunity and find out what it's all about. Yeah, because then you're like, then you're starting to learn things like, hmm, where's where are the three nearest pawn shops, and what are the types of things that I can get Rent rid is of? Due on the first of the month, like, 
How are we going to keep the electricity? Exactly, on? electricity or water? Which one can we do without for a few days? How do but we? The bottom that? line, like our good friend Russ Landy says, it's 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 like a sickness. It gets into your system, and like you've really got to be a rare bird to have a passion for this. And and my brother, God rest his soul, has said, "Hey, if you can take your obsession and turn it into a profession." you'll never work it a day in your life. So like, even though it's 15, 20 hour work days, it doesn't feel like work. It's all fun. It's all love. It's all good. And Hey, I want to, I want to trade it for a thing. Yeah. Well, we're going to get to that work right now. Cause I, you know, certainly these were, these are things I know folks were are often interested in hearing, but at the same time, they want to hear some football. So, but before we do that, I have one last question for you. That's kind of related to this is it's kind of a three part question. The first thing is, What's one thing you love about what you do? You know, I think I love the fact that I just, I, I work in football and uh, the travel is something that you, it's an evil necessary. And so like, and, and one point of the perspective, like now, like when I was 20 years old, traveling was so cool to me. Yeah. I'm 41. I have a kid, I have a family. So the travel takes a toll but then, you know, you've got to put things in perspective and say like, hey, I, I've been privileged enough to the last couple of years work with the, the NFLPA Collegiate Bowl. And so like you hop on the board from Newark Airport to depart to Oregon, Eugene, and you say, well, like how many people are going to pay me to fly across the country and go do like a 10 school swing in five days and go see all it's like, hey, I love the fact that I get to go like literally on location across the nation. Now COVID was obviously a whole different experience this past year, but two years ago, like I went to 25 games, I visited another 25 to 30 schools in person. So I saw like 75 to 80 schools and interacted with those coaches, with those players, with the families. I'm out there in the tailgate having drinks, like finding out who's the, who's all in their entourage, like getting to know these guys. And like, to me, it's the process. Like anytime I can get out on the field, out in the road and, you know, away from the office, like to me, that's the part I love about it. I love it. What's a necessary evil that you appreciate? It sounds like travel was is is part of that now. So what about something that you either loved or and now hate or something that you hated but now love about what you do? So here's a dirty little secret. Uh I hate I used to love attending the NFL draft. I now hate it. <laughs> I can understand. <laughs> yeah i mean it sucks like people think like oh you have credentials to the draft it's so cool yeah it's so cool to be sitting in a media room with like 300 other media members with no volume on the tvs so we don't know anything that's going on at all <laughs> at all and like when it moved out of new york i remember the first year in chicago the first year out of new york that was the first year where they had nothing for the media on day three, my yeah. favorite day. Yeah. And I remember going to uh, Grant Park or whatever it yeah. is where we, we had been for the first two days and we show up here for day three and we, we hunt down the, uh, the media, you know, the PR point person. And we're like, yo, where's the media <laughs> section? Like where, like where are we, where are we supposed to be? And they walk us over. Like they literally walk us a herd of us. They walk us over to this stage map. And you'll appreciate this. They have it. They literally have duct tape now outlined. Okay. It's about two feet wide <laughs> and eight and eight foot long. 
and there's an outlet with four plugins, right? Oh, and, and, and they walk the herd of the media. They walk a herd of media over to this two by eight duct taped box <laughs> and one outlet, and they say, "This is the media section." <laughs> and, and, and like we're just looking at each other in astonishment, like, "What are we gonna do?" Yeah. Like we can't, we're not gonna survive all of us. <laughs> you know, it's Gilligan's Island now. Like we're not all gonna survive. And so, like that was the first year, I was forced back to the hotel room because I w- I just wasn't yeah gonna do that. And so, like I went, I had to watch the draft in my hotel room the first year, the first year they went to Chicago, and I'm and I'm saying, oh my god, this is horrible, because now I'm actually listening it to to it with the volume up. And I'm hearing them like day three, I'm watching like 10 picks scroll across the bottom of my screen and they're still talking about the quarterback taken on day one. And I'm like, oh my God, these guys, they're not, they're not informed. They're not knowledgeable enough to talk about the prospects chosen on day three. And so like this year now I said, Hey, the heck with this, we'll have some people out there on location in Cleveland. I'm good with it. Like I remember back in the day, when we would do interviews in the theater at Madison Square Garden, like there, there was no uh, security and red tape and all these uh, uh, hula hoops they had to jump through. Like I remember Michael Crabtree, I had never seen an entourage like the one that Michael Crabtree showed up with at the NFL draft. I mean, you're talking 20, 30 people just taking over. And, like, you'd be like, yo, Michael, come on over. Like, let's do the interview. You know, like, come on, man. Like, come on. And he'd sit down and do the interview. Now, like, there's security. Like, you need a sword to fight your way through. Like, you know, you're trying to get an interview on the red carpet. You're, like, literally throwing bows and, like, getting bumped around trying to hold the camera steady so like you know it's a whole different ball game i guess it speaks to the popularity of the draft and the explosion of the nfl draft but we said the heck with that this year we're going to do our own draft coverage and so like i really uh am looking forward to day three especially because i feel like our analysts and our uh scouts can talk about those day three prospects better than anybody so that's a little little tale from uh little dirty secret like i used to love going to the nfl draft and now i just hate it i laugh because now when i think about your story i know that if if philadelphia's draft was anything remotely like chicago's then i then i have to say that i'm now betting on mike clay if there's ever a media battle battle royal because that little i don't know how tall he is or how big he is but i kind of get the impression that he's a he's kind of a medium-sized a little dude and I might be wrong about that, but if Mike, if you're listening, props to you either way. Um, so let's get to some players. Who are two to three players that if you were part of an organization and you had some sway with, you, you know, whether you were the GM or whether you were the head of scouting or you were a longtime scout that you knew that you had the ear of the room, who are two to three players that you're just sold on and that you're like, if these players are at the right spots, you want them. Yeah, I'm going to give you a few names here, and 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 a couple of them might be obvious, but I talk about the trip, the West Coast Trail. I went on a couple years ago out to Eugene, Oregon, and at the time, if you remember a couple years ago, Oregon had about five or six offensive linemen drafted or priority free agents, Shane Lemieux, Doc Morton. Like, there was a lot of guys on that offensive line, so I'm down there on the field pregame, and they're all, you know, they're all seniors, uh, they had the transfer to from Alabama that was over there, the guard, the pudgy little dude. 
And so, like, they're all down there on the field pregame, and they're all gravitating towards this this one guy that's just really riled up, Matt. I mean, I've been around the game of football for a long time, but nobody's been as pissed off as angry and fierce before a game as this guy. Like, he's he's beating these guys up. Like, he's hitting these guys and knocking them down on the ground pregame, and I'm saying, who the heck is this guy? Like, who the heck is this guy? And I, I, he's a sophomore at the time. I go, Panay Sewell. I said, my God. I said, let me make note of this guy. I want him on my team. <laughs> he's not, he doesn't have the body beautiful. Like, he's not Paul Orndorff, right? Like, he's not going to impress you from the, the physical appearance. Like, he's a little sloppy around the belly maybe when I saw him in person. But, like, to me, it didn't scare me at all because then I watched him play. And, again, he's starting at left tackle as a redshirt sophomore, I believe. All the underclassmen are gravitatory, and like he's literally like knocking these guys down on the ground. I'm saying this guy's an animal. Sign me up, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and so, like, I I hate to be go with the obvious, but to me, he's a clear blue chip, chip, chip talent. And to me, like, I was really high on T.J. Hawkinson, who I thought was just about as good of a tight end that I had evaluated. Yeah, me too. And and now this guy Kyle Pitts comes along. And I'm like, to me, it's like there's Kellen Winslow. That's Shannon, my comp. That's my comp. Right? It's like it, Kellen's at the top. There's Kellen Winslow. There's Shannon Sharp, and then there's Kyle Pitts. Yeah, like that's the category he's in. Yeah, right. And this guy is just so phenomenal. And I really think the Bengals are the in the ultimate dilemma because they have they might have the choice of Penny Sewell, they might have the choice of Kyle Pitts. Yeah. But then, like, think back two years ago, that LSU offense where Jamar Chase, I think, had 15 touchdowns of 40 yards or more. I think Joe Burrow threw for, like, 60. Could you imagine the Bengals' war room, like, trying to debate? Do we want Sewell? Do we want Pitts? Or do we reunite Joe Burrow and Jamar Chase? Like, they've got the (laughs) toughest decision come draft day. But the one other guy, I'll go, like, non-day one. And somebody, to me, again, freshman year, Pops off the tape. My good friend Ted Gavai, who's the assistant GM up for the Winnipeg uh, Blue Bombers, and they won the last Grey Cup. And I know he lives like right over the border, so he always goes to Buffalo. And I remember watching the game of like Jarrett Patterson's first ever collegiate game. And I'm and I'm texting Ted. I'm like, Coach, did you see the running back over there at Buffalo? He's like, Yeah, he kid can play and so like i've always been keeping my tabs on jarrett patterson now he came in at five foot six and four eight inches so like the easy thing to do is like hey he's darren sproles and like how many undersized running backs have been comped to darren sproles but like to me if jarrett patterson emerged as the best running back i would not be surprised and if he played a decade in the league much like a darren sproles i would not be surprised but to me jarrett patterson is a guy that could play for me any day of the week. And in terms of on the field talent and skill set, he reminds me a lot of Ray Rice. There you go. He's a very polished player. Like he, that's for sure. I wanted to love him. I and I wanted up liking him, but I didn't love him as much as I wanted, but I get it. Like I totally get that. A guy that's like for me that could that I that I liked a lot and I'm sold on. I like I love him, but know that maybe he may only generate like when you see him on the field in the NFL, depending on how far he goes, is Nick Bolton. I I just, I really dig how Nick Bolton moves around and sees the game. 
And when a guy like Chad Ryder compares him to Eric Kendricks and, and says, this is a guy who sees the field like Kendricks. And I've studied Kendricks enough that, you know, when I watch Bolton, I'm like, I get it. Like he gets to his spots. He sees the angles. He may not be the fastest guy, but he can cover enough field because he knows where he, he knows his angles, figures out where does it go. And he may always be an undersized guy, you know, and that's kind of the thing with him. But he's a football player. and I'm- I agree. That's the, the bottom line. He's a football player. And to me, he's one of my top five or top ten players in this year's draft. And I think a lot of people are sleeping on the linebacker class as a whole because you've got guys like Bolton, Zayvon Collins, Jamin Davis, Davis. <laughs> Micah Parsons. Like yeah. Those are like four guys, I think, all first-round bound. And, you know, you don't really hear too much about it, right? No, not at all. And, I, and those are – Four guys I talked about last night on the OBR with Jake Burns, the um, Cleveland excellent Cleveland Browns podcast host who does terrific analy- analysis for the Cleveland Browns community. But, uh, yeah, that's one of those guys. And then a the guy who just – I just dig the way that he plays the game because he plays it with an edge. And when I first watched him, I just thought, I'm watching him just terrorize people as a blocker. And he has – He's a it's and it's um, Dwayne Eskridge because Dwayne Eskridge when you watch him block he he literally gets under the skin of defenders because as a former cornerback he will like knock down the hands and kind of parry the hands of the defender and then get his hands into him and just play to the echo of the whistle long enough and give a shove or do something that it's an ir- he's an irritant and like while I don't always like irritants like to have a guy on your team who does that, but is smart enough that after he's done enough to get the guy angry, he then will get close enough to that edge, but not as far as he was before and let off. And that defender wants him like is just, and that defender is committing penalties and is off his game. He gets in the head of players. And while I think he has more drops than you'd like to see, um, I think he has good enough hands to make big plays. Um, I love the speed factor in his game. And I do like the fact that he's psychologically smart enough to be able to do that at this age. That tells me something about him. And I always want a player who kind of inspires and plays hard, maybe a little harder than you you might necessarily say is fair, but the NFL isn't always fair. And so you kind of want someone like that. And I just feel like he provides a level of emotional toughness, uh, mental toughness that's very good with his game. Um, so I'm I'm a fan of him in terms of like I'm sold on that he's going to be a good player in the NFL. I think he's got the mentality. Um, and the guy who I think I've talked about a ton already, probably in the past few days, but it's just Trey Sermon. I just I dig backs who are smart. I dig backs who you know who just really understand um, how to be efficient when they run the football. And this guy's both dynamic and efficient, in, in a, but he knows how to express that in a way that he's going to find that hole. He's going to get that crease. I think I talked about it in another show, but it's like, you know, I have an RSP film room on my site where I talk about what would Frank Gore do, and and it was this and it was this moment where I'm watching Anthony McFarland last year against the Jaguars, and he loses like three or four yards on a play because. Um, there he's working towards the middle, sees the gap get temporarily filled, and he sees the flash of a defender coming 
into the inside. And instead of like making a quick bounce and then bouncing back inside, which a veteran would do, he completely veers off course and ends up getting tackled by penetration he didn't see. And every a lot of people love guys like McFarland because they have the fancy jump cuts and the speed. And to me, it's like, that's just baseline stuff. I don't care how far you can jump cut or how fast you are. If you've got the minimum amount of that stuff to work with, that's good enough for me. It's kind of like, to me, it's kind of like cooking with pans. Like if the pan's good enough, you don't have to pay an extra thousand dollars for the thing. If it's going to do the job for you and you know how to cook, you're good to go. And so to me, it's like that, you know, he's like that high price pan, but at the same time, there's a flaw with it that, and uh, in the sense that the person doesn't know how much time to leave the egg on or how to season it properly. And when you look at Frank Gore, I'm watching Frank Gore and I remember thinking, I wonder what Frank Gore would do. So like, then I, I watch him that it was like on a Sunday and it was on Monday when I was evaluating um, all this. And I pull up Frank Gore's game with the Jets, old man Gore against the Chargers. First play, I kid you not, same thing happens to him. And he just like, boop, boop, bounces right back inside, gets like eight to 10 yards on the play. And I'm just like, I got to make a clip of this because that's what good running is. It's all that other stuff is great. And if you have that and the top speed, then yes, you're a top prospect. Sermon doesn't have the top speed. He didn't. He left and went to another school, so his production is kind of spotty um, from a box score perspective. But when you watch his game, it's like this is an NFL running back. He may not be the best running back, though I graded him as such. But he's, but he's going to be up there because he has those skills you look for, other than the top end speed. But he'll flip the field enough for you. And I think that the people who really study the tape know this is a good back. Yeah, and somebody's going to be in for a day three treat. And I say day three only because I my understanding is there is like some kind of collarbone issue that he has yeah. that could limit him early on in his career. But yeah. if you can have that long-term perspective, like you mentioned uh, Dwayne Eskridge, like, again, he, he was healthy this year, but previously had some injury. And like, that's the beauty. And to me, I find it hard to believe Dwayne Eskridge will escape the top 100. But I think when you factor in the depth of the class, the previous injury history, like, hey, if you miss out on a Kadarius Tony, a Rondell Moore, a Jalen Waddle, one of these guys on, on day one, well, the, Dwayne Eskridge is not a bad consolation prize because he is going to outperform a lot, a lot of wide receivers that get selected ahead of him. For sure. So let's talk about, you know, give me one to three players, as many as you want to do really, who you're, you're not sold on completely. But if the key people in your organization are also on board because you're leaning that way, that you'd be you'd be one to say yeah let's pull the trigger on this guy and take the shot yeah this, this is a fun question because it's like where does the risk outweigh the reward right yeah. so to me jalen phillips like everybody talks about gregory rousseau quincy roche but to me the best pass rusher on the miami team and maybe in this draft is jalen phillips right like He's probably the most polished player. He's got the size. He's got the athleticism. He's got the twitch, the quick first step. But it's like, okay, he's had how many concussions? Three, four. 
He's had how many surgeries? Two, three, wrist, knee. <laughs> like, you know, it's a laundry list of injuries. Yeah. And so, like, you know, if you said he went in the top half of the first round, I wouldn't be surprised. If you told me he went on day three, I wouldn't be surprised. And if you told me he was the best pass rusher five years from now out of this year's draft class, I wouldn't be surprised. So, you know, I went all offensive on you on the on the last question. I'll go all defense on you on, the, on this Sweet. one because, yeah, my next guy is – Another one where I'm down on the field pregame. This is going back to Michigan State Rutgers. And Michigan State had some other uh, defensive line prospects last year. And I just happened out of the corner of my eye, there's some pregame drills going on. And Naquan Jones, big mammoth guy, like, you know, talk about throwing guys. Like, he's tossing his his guys like ragdolls, you know, like – who the heck is this guy, right? And I, I just happened out of the corner of my eye, Mike Mayock is gawking at him. <laughs> and, I, and, like, and, Ma- and Mayock catches me catching him last second and, like, looks up and, like, did anybody see me gawking over Nate Like, this guy's like a mammoth galoot. And then you watch him, and, like, he really doesn't do anything. He's just kind of there, right? And, like, those old-fashioned space eaters, uh, you know, back in the day, the Ravens, they had Sarah Goose. So who was the other guy uh, with Goose in the middle? Oh, I just, yeah. You know, you know who I'm talking about? Yeah. Big 370 Oregon, Oregon dude. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> with the visor, right? Yeah. And so it was a Gilbert Brown. Was it? No. no. Gilbert Brown was the Packers, but he's the same kind of player. He's just kind of there, Matt. Like you, you, you really don't see him show up in the box score. But there's an old saying, like, nose tackles don't grow on trees. And this guy can just eat space. He can absorb two, three bodies and open up lanes for your linebackers. And so, to me, Naquan Jones is a guy where, you know, you're going to flip on the film and say, like, well, he doesn't really jump off off the tape. But it's like, Coach, hey, he's opening up all these lanes for for the linebackers to take these direct paths to the ball carriers and make plays. So Naquan Jones is one. And then the uh, the kid from Georgia Tech, I feel like Jalen Camp and um, – I was going to mention him. I'm glad. <laughs> yeah, and, and, like, he's already blown up. But Georgia Tech, I'm going to give you two for the price of one because two years ago – and I always keep saying two years ago because this year was non-existent with the COVID travel. I didn't go anywhere. But I remember Jeff Collins taking over the, the, the head coach job there, and they got away from this triple option offense. And – they had this player, Jalen Camp, and I'm and, and I'm saying, okay, well, I'm going to get to talk to Jalen. Let me go look at his bio, look at his production. Like, he's got no production. He's got no catch. Okay, they play triple option. I'm like, Coach, what made you bring Jalen Camp to, to media day? And he's like, he just raved about this DNA, the character, the personality, the leadership, the intangibles. And then, like, you know, again, like his, his production isn't through the roof. And then you saw the pro day he had, right? But I'm going to stick it to the defensive theme, too, because I don't want to sell David Curry short. And another guy that I got to see in person, probably like six foot, 225, does not check off the boxes. Might not check off any box, really. And I don't know what his pro day was like, but I can tell you he he didn't turn any heads on his 40-yard dash, right? I, I just know that by watching the film. Like, the athleticism is limited. But you watch him play, and he just – True knows for the football, like all the old adages, like the simple, like the guy's a ball hawk. 
he's got the intangible, like the coach, like he's like having a coach on the field, like he's moving his players in the right position, pre-snap, calling out plays. His father was a uh, buddy. Curry was a, a defensive rookie of the year, 1980 for the Atlanta Falcons. His his brother was drafted by the Cincinnati Reds. His other brother was a quarterback at Auburn. Like they just come from a sports family. And he's another guy that just had so much injury past that I feel like nobody talks about David Curry. But when you get him into the training camp, like it's going to be hard to cut him from your 53-man roster. Nice. Nice. I love those. I love those. And I'll lead off with Jalen Camp since you gave me a little room to talk about him. Um, because I didn't, before his pro day, I started watching him. And it was like about a month before his pro day. And his catch radius is ridiculous. And the way he goes up and can win some of these, some of the, some of the throw, like there's plays. I saw one play where he works over the middle on a seam route and the ball Literally, he's tracking over his inside shoulder and the ball arrives over his head, over his outside shoulder. And with his back to the football, he's able to track that ball, just windshield wiper across and make that play. That's so difficult of a play to make. And go ahead. It's funny. No, it's funny you say that because he can equally, like to me, I thought one of his strengths when I watched him too was working the sidelines. And I guess it just goes to his natural instincts from what you're describing and what I saw. Like, this guy works the sidelines so great. And so it just, like, yeah. we're seeing the same things. But over the middle, working the sidelines. How high do you think Jalen Camp could go? I honestly, like, listen, I've he could have easily been among my top 12 receivers. Like, it, he wasn't far away from that. Um, and he, I have him, where do I have him ranked right now? I have Camp eight sixteenth on my wide receiver board out of sixty five receivers. Yeah, round four is not out of the realm now. No, exactly, and that's like there's a play on the sideline with him that I watched and I said, that's like a Larry Fitzgerald, Calvin Johnson, Brandon Lloyd, Paul Richardson type of like crazy catch, one handed man on at your back, pluck the ball from an odd angle, one handed like near the boundary and still staying in bounds. And I'm thinking, wow, if this guy, if this guy, what I didn't see on the field was him moving with the ball, the way he moved in his pro day. If he does have opportunities to show that he would have easily been in my top 10. And I'm not saying, saying he can't, I'm just saying, I didn't see it watching a lot of the games. I just saw basically getting the ball and then, you know, maybe taking some contact. He was in, wasn't in a position to do the things that I needed to see. Um, but yeah, he's a guy I would absolutely take the chance on. Um, and people might be saying at home, like Calvin Johnson, really? Whoa. Like, and to your point, like he might not have the yard after catch ability of a Megatron, but the body type and the skill set and the, and just, yeah, yeah, like it's, it's, it's a lot of similarities there. He's a, he's built like a, He's built like a running back. He's built like Eric Dickerson, maybe, because he's 6'2", 226. I mean, this guy, you know, 4'4", 340, 4'2", shuttle, 7023 control, 40-inch vertical leap at 6'2", 226, 30 bench press, 30 bench press reps for a wide receiver. Now, that says something, right? Because we say, like, hey, we don't put much stock in wide receiver numbers. We usually say that because they're, like, in the single digits, right? Yeah. But when you get double digits, your eyebrows raise. Here's a guy who did 30. Yeah, exactly. So, 
That and the cat natural catch skills and ball tracking skills that are difficult to teach or correct if they're already where they are at the level that they are. So that guy right away is one that that comes to mind, you know. And then as for a tight end, you know, there's a there's a couple of tight ends in this class that I would just kind of want to take a chance on because they might be late bloomers and they might have some interesting. It's a sneaky deep class, by the way. I think there's some yeah. depth here in the tight end class. I agree. Um, one of the guys that just He's just got that natural rebounding skill. He was a pro bat. He was a basketball player, a good college, um, you know, prep basketball player. And that's pro Wells out of TCU. When I watch this guy, you know, I don't know how great he moves. He's certainly not a blocker and definitely wasn't used to such in TCU's offense, but just the natural feel for posting up and winning the football, the natural ball skills, um, he did seem to move reasonably well as a runner after the catch. Um, I don't know about him off the field, what his work habits are, but from the tape, if if people were like, this checks out and we, we're with you with the tape, two to three years from now, it's kind of similar tape that I remember seeing from Robert Tanyan. It's similar tape that you could see from a lot of guys who develop into a little bit more. So I'm a, I'm kind of a fan of him and Kenny Yaboa because they both have that kind of catch radius skill after the catch to, to move. And I think that that would work out fairly well. And then, you know, the other guy would be Sean Bayer or Sean Bayer out of Iowa because he has that same thing. But, and he was a former wide receiver, but he's really grown into his body. It took him a little while to do. But he's he's at two fifty. He's six fit five two fifty. He's from a program where while I'm, none of us like to logo scout, he's from a program that you know. Like there's some programs that you just say, listen, if you're a tight end at Iowa, you may not be the best blocker, but you're gonna learn the right way how to block. Yeah, it's more than a logo though. That that's a coaching staff, right? Yes, exactly. So it's like if you, it, I'm I'm gonna at least know. That when I work this kid out, if he shows the fundamentals that I'm expecting him to have, and I thought he showed a, a fair number of them, if I work him out more and feel like this is a kid who's going to get it when it comes to that part of the game, and at least we know that if he fits our scheme for what we ask a tight end to do in the blocking game, and he can do enough of that, we're good. He may not have to be Hawkinson or Pat Fryermuth or any of these other guys that are terrific blockers, but he... But if he can do the backside work or he can be an H-back or he can help double team and we know that he's reliable because the techniques are good, I'm sold. I'm letting him develop and going from there. So so those are some of the guys that, and along with Jonathan Adams of Arkansas State, um, with that wild catch radius, he's got enough speed. He's strong enough of a build. I'd like to see him. I love him. I, yeah, I think he can develop. I think he's got that. That bend, he's got enough bend that I think he can run timing routes and develop into that sphere. So if my if my teammates on whatever part of you know we were in an organization with were like, yeah, we're sold on the rest of him, I'd pull the trigger. All right, so let's you know move on with if you knew that you had you know five years guaranteed as a GM. And you and I'd lo- I'd want to know just whether you can talk about the scouting, the draft, free agents, coaching. You can talk about any amount of things you want with this. 
how would you build a team? Well, clearly here at the NFL Draft Bible, we would build it through the draft, right? <laughs> so, you know, that that's the easy answer. But no, I think that, like, to me, I, I, I believe, like, this is where the free agent bargains are found in terms of free agency. Like, I, I never would be one to overpay. And I, I took a lot of fact, like, I went on the Giants podcast, and I said, I don't think Kenny Galladay is a number one receiver on a good team. I said, I'd be curious to know. I didn't go and check myself, but, like, how many teams made the playoffs last year? Now go back and tell me how many teams Kenny Galladay would be the number one wide receiver on. Yeah. Now I get it. It's a need. And in free agency, you've got to overpay to fill a need. But to me, you know, why Why don't I just go draft a Terrence Marshall, like, with pick 43? Yeah. You know, and, and I don't have to spend an arm and a leg. So, like, to me, those those are the things – that like I would never overpay in free agency ever, 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 no matter how bad of a need. And so like, that's one of my philosophies. The other one would be building from the inside out to your point earlier, Dwayne Eskridge, like I can find skill players for days. Yep. Right. And, and so like, that's the least of my concerns. I'm probably never going to draft a running back in the first round. Saquon Barkley might've been the exception to the rule and look how that worked out. Yeah. Yeah. So and so like and then you can got to find a guy like James Robinson who goes undrafted. So like, why am I investing my equity in a first round pick at the running back position? I right. can't see it. So like to me, I'd build it from the inside out. If I had a five year window, I wouldn't force the quarterback. So, you know, like Carolina, they ran out of options like they weren't able to trade up to one of the top three picks. So they, I feel like they settled for the next best contingency plan, which was Sam Darnold. I'm not saying it's a bad move, but like, don't force it. If if that's your fit, like, hey, great, go get, go get it, go after it. But like the Falcons, to me, we talked about the Bengals being in a tough position. To me, the Falcons are in a tough position because on one end of the spectrum, it's like, okay, do we settle for the fourth best quarterback? On the other opposite end of the spectrum, like, are we really ever going to be picking this high again to be taking our next yeah. franchise quarterback? And, and that's a tough. Yeah. And you could also look at it from another angle and go, well, we might get the second or third best quarterback and, and there might be a gap between the team. You know, it's just my opinion, but I'm not a Zach Wilson fan. So, like, I look at it and I think the Jets pretty much pretty much took to me the sixth best quarterback and as the second best quarterback. So that might present value to us to be able to get the second or third best quarterback. And maybe the fourth best quarterback is a good tier above the fifth or sixth best guy who was already off the board. So if you're feeling that perspective, then yes, but it's tough decision either way. No, it's, it's really tough. And so, and it goes back to like why I would figure out, like, let me establish the offensive line because I've seen guys like Carr with the Texans, uh, you know, you, you you throw a quarterback, even Burrow last year didn't have the necessary protection. You throw a quarterback back there without the proper protection, like you could now ruin his mind. Yeah. You know, I mean, like, because we saw Carr, what did he get sacked, 72 times his rookie year? Yeah. It was never the same. Exactly. Right. I mean, he was getting rid of the ball. Like talk about seeing ghosts and hearing footsteps. I mean, this guy was getting rid of the ball so quick because he was worried about being buried six feet under every play. Like before he can hand off the ball, they're in the backfield, partying in the backfield. Right. And yeah. so to me, like I would build 
the offensive line and defensive line first. I would build from the inside out. And then I would place such a major emphasis on the undrafted free agent process, which I talked about on, on the morning show today on the state of football is just like between 27 to 33% of every NFL roster consists of undrafted free agents. To me, this is just as valuable as the NFL draft because I might add seven draft picks, but I'm probably going to add about 20 undrafted free agents. Yeah. And a third of those guys are going to make the team. So like, I'm probably going to have seven draft picks. I'm probably going to have another seven undrafted free agents. And to me, if you're more prepared than the next man, so like the Cincinnati Bengals, they, they lean on their coaches to do a lot of the evaluation. Like they don't have a lot of scouts. They're out of the playoffs come January. Okay. Hey coaches now go watch the film. Like tell us who you like to me. Like those are the teams that are going to lose out in this year's draft process because they don't have the long tenured scouts. They don't have those relationships. Like the biggest deal is getting intel and information and in the year of covid like there's no travel there's no on location scouting so now you've got 32 teams media everybody else hitting up these schools for information like if you don't have those relationships you're not getting the call back you're not getting the email back you're not getting that information and data so to me like you can find the guys that have the injury history that maybe transferred and fell through the cracks the small school guys, like I, I, I've got enough confidence in my scouting ability to vouch for FCS guy, even if I don't have measurements or verified measurables. And I think like you saw six players, six from the FCS level selected last year, a record low. It beat the previous year, which was 18. That was the record low. Now we go one year without verified measurables and verified times and scouts are scared to pound the table for these guys six from 18 to six yeah to me like you talk to people in the league it's because going back like there's only so many of these jobs on the planet most scouts don't want to be a gm most scouts don't want to elevate up the ladder they want to hold on to the job they have yeah and that means being conservative playing it right talking about players that i know which most of the times comes to the p5 so I would also be another guy that drafts a quarterback every year. You could never have enough good quarterbacks. And if you do, guess what? You have assets that you can trade. And so, like, I would always draft a quarterback every year. It doesn't have to be the first round. I'd build from the inside out. I'd place just as much emphasis on the undrafted free agent process as I do my seven draft picks. And, you know, if I only got 12 guys with a first-round grade and I'm picking 16th, well, I'm going to trade out. Give me the stockpile of picks. Give me more picks because first round picks bust just as much as second round picks, just as much as day three picks. And if you, if you just play the percentages, right? I always said, Hey, if you can bat, it's just like MLB. If you can bat 300 with your draft picks, you're doing a pretty damn good job. If you go 50%, man, you are in rare air, but Hey, give me seven picks. Let me bat 300. And you're doing a pretty good job. And and so those are some of the things to me in terms of how I would build a program. I love it. And I have so many things I agree with you on with that. First and foremost is I'm building inside out first. Absolutely. Offensive line. I'm placing a high value on the center above everything else, even though you may not have to get a center in the first round. I'm definitely making sure I lock in my center and my guards. I know that tackle's important, but... To me, that interior is very important these days, especially with these uh, disruptive defensive tackles who can just ruin a quarterback faster than edge pressure. 
I mean, so I'm I'm building inside out. Want to get the defense. Want some shutdown corners, um, hard hidden safeties. You know, I want to be able to have a team that can at least run the ball. If I can get a team that can it, that can protect the passer, run the ball, and have cohesion because I have an excellent center, um, you know, and interior play, then I'm feeling pretty good to begin with. And then yes, um, if if there's a free if there's one free agent position I will go after, it will be the the vision will be if I can build a team that's young and promising and talented and has all of that in three years, year four, I'm going after that quarterback who's who didn't get his third contract or didn't get his fourth contract, who everyone says is over the hill, but he has another three to four years possibly left. Hoping that I land a Peyton Manning, though I know that won't happen, but hoping I land somebody similar in that regard um, who can be a coach on the field, who can get help wide receivers by leaps and bounds, you know, the way Peyton Manning helped Demarius Thomas figure out how to play his game and how to be the best that he could be. And I would, fi- I would look for that scenario if I don't land a quarterback by drafting one every year and building up exactly the way you said. So I'm really big on that. So we're very similar in regards to team build. I'm with. So in other words, Matt, if the Houston Texans are listening to the show right now, we're available. Exactly. There you go. And then, and then I will add this. I am, um, you know, free agency. Couldn't agree more. You got to be prepared for that. You, and the way you laid that out is perfect. There's nothing more I could say about that. Um, but scouting. This is what I would probably do differently. The first, or before I get to scouting, when it comes to quarterback play, development in the NFL is just awful in terms of in terms of that. So I would find identify quarterbacks who I feel like were the greatest students of the game, as well as not, and they don't have to be Peyton Manning or Tom Brady, but they can also be guys like a Rich Gannon or someone who developed over time and had to develop their skills while they're in the game. And I say, I'm hiring you as a consultant. And what I'd like you to do is to spend the first year scouting out all these quarterback teachers that are available to all of the, all of the pros and who the, who's the best ones and why are they good? And we're going to identify two to three of them that we feel good about. And I'm going to put these guys on retainer. Um, and they are going to be working with my with my young quarterbacks, okay? And I'm going to have these quarterbacks, and you know, I'm going to draft one every year, and they're going to be working with them. I'm going to also make sure that with my scouting staff, I'm going to hire two to three guys who could easily be scouting heads, like the head of scouting, and they've worked their way up through the organization, and their only job is to... I'm going to pay them handsomely and I'm going to, their only job is going to be traveling around to do the interviews and to do the research, talking to coaches, the guys that kind of have clout that coaches are going to listen to, but also have the feel to know when they're getting sunshine blown up their hind parts. Um, And at the same time, know the system of how to go about all this and they'll be on the road a fair bit, but they're only going to be on the road they're going to be do, they're the ones that are going to be asking the important questions because they're the ones that I'm going to trust to editorialize or make the judgment calls on 
when someone says, yeah, he's out all the time and he's out on the, you know, he's out in the bars all the time because as I've heard before in the past, and I've told the story oftentimes before, so I'll just do the quick summary. There's a difference between a guy who hangs out with two of his best friends every night at a club for 45 minutes to two, an hour and a half and leaves early and all he has is a bottle of water and talks to people. And that's actually something that people, some guys do as opposed to others who are getting drunk and getting into all sorts of potential trouble um, and putting themselves, opening themselves up to a lot of situations. And sometimes scouts don't know the difference of how to ask the right questions to get those answers. So I want the guys who can do that and they're going to go around and make those decisions so that the, the scouts who do the entry level stuff, I want them in house focused on watching film and I want to have meetings every month with coaches so that the coaches and the scouts and the GM are all on the same page about what we're looking for, why we're looking for it, how do we define that, and how we watch tape. Because I've met scouts who also say, who who say, how, how did you learn? Like Matt Williamson. I asked Matt Williamson early on when he was, how'd you get the job with the Browns? I took a test. They studied film. How'd you do with it? I don't know. They hired me, so it was good enough. How did you learn? What kind of continuous learning do you have? They told me I could sit in on team meetings, but I had so much work to do that you could do that, but it was like, you know, you could do some of that, but there was no organized program. And to me, I'd rather take some hits in year one and year two and build a scouting staff that's so good that it's like the scouting tree of the league. Like, I want this to be like, I want the league to to look at whatever team that this is, to look at and go, this is where you can get scouts from. This is where you're going to have a process and we're going to learn that. And then by hopefully by like year three, year four, as we're continuing to build on this and tension might be building, you know, obviously in the public because we might not do well right off the bat. But as we learn and we get better, I think what will end up happening is we'll have a great scouting group. We'll have a great development group with um, quarterbacks in terms of a program that's linked into what we do. And if we get the right players based on what we're picking, and I'm confident that it can happen, that we'll have a promising team that any quarterback who's like, I wanted to finish my career, my 12-year career here and my multiple Pro Bowls, but they feel like I'm getting a little long in the tooth. But this team has a ready-made offensive line, promising talent, and they've got their head on straight. I can take this team somewhere. And I think by year four and five, if if I get fired, whatever. But, you know, I I built it the way I wanted to try and do it. But I think by year four and five, they go, oh, I think this guy figured this thing out. I think maybe they were onto something here. You, you, you mean by year four and five when you'd be getting fitted for your second or third ring? <laughs> we can we can only dream right right well the one thing that stands out to me is like the art of the hard question that you mentioned because the, the, it, it fascinates me for people that i talk to that have been in those roles and in those chairs and the process that goes behind i mean it takes a lot of years of understanding how to make a player being comfortable, uncomfortable, how to set them up for that question, how to have the resources and connections again in the COVID era. Like how many times now are you getting a chance to be one-on-one -on -one with a player? So for example, this year I had a scout tell me he took an, 
not an unorthodox approach, but a kind of workaround. So like BYU, he asked a handful of draft eligible players, like who's the one teammate you would bring with you to the next level? None of them said Zach Wilson. Little telling, right? Yeah. And so like, there's a lot of yeah. different ways, a lot of different approaches yeah. you can go about it. But like you start talking to the BYU, go, hey, give me one guy, one teammate you'd bring to the next level. None of them say they're quarterback. Yeah. Hey, maybe I need to do a little bit more research here. Yeah, exactly. And that's a great thing. And and that's part of it is that think about it. You're 41, you said? Okay. Tell me, I mean, I'm 51. If in when we were 28, even if we like even at 28, and you're feeling good at 28, like you're like at that age where you feel like you're an adult finally like you figured out being an still adult. invincible you feel still but you still feel invincible like yeah you didn't know jack about how to ask questions or how to really like like you think back and you go yeah like there's a lot i had to learn about the nuance of like really relating to people and understanding because of the ex- lack of experiences you had and how to see where the outcome was and so to me while i know that 50-year-old dudes and 60-year-old dudes don't want to travel all that much often oftentimes and they've been through all that if i could be if i could present an attractive enough package to say listen this is what you're going to be doing we're not going to ask you to do anything more than this but this is your expertise and you're going to help us immeasurably because of that what do i have to do to make sure that you're going to be happy doing this you know, I would invest in that, you know, and I would I would invest in that more so than I think teams do. And, you know, it's so funny because like the other th- aspect to it is it, it, I find interesting is you're 51. I'm 41. I know in our heads we still think and act like we're 21. Right. So like we <laughs> we <laughs> I could tell from a few meals that we still think and act like we're 21. But right. like you go to the schools and then like reality slaps you in the face. Yes, sir. No, sir. Yeah, it's like, whoa, I guess I'm kind of old over here. Like they're, mm-hmm. you know, and people view you as like this older guy. And so like the other aspect is like getting the players to drop their guard, right? Yeah. Because they're so guarded with and, and like going back to our previous conversation, or maybe it was the morning show, it all blends into one at this point, but like you know, it's funny, the information you can get out of a guy in July or August going into his final year of college and then fast forward to February or March. When the wall comes up. Yep. <laughs> right. After they've been, they got this agent, they got this media trainer, they've got, they've been programmed with all the right answers. They're like, whoa, like this is not the guy I spoke to over the summer. Like what happened? You know? It, exactly. And so like, it, it's such an art form that people don't realize and it takes years and years and years and I'm still honing my craft. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's easy. And it's, and it's those little things that people may not notice that will catch your eye. I mean, I know that this all sounds very touchy feely, you know, with the soft skills, but the reason I, I think the biggest re I told the story, I tell the story a lot too, but it's like the biggest reason I never told from this angle. The biggest reason I like said, I need to really study Russell Wilson and I wound up like liking him and, and that that probably put me a little bit more on the map in the public sphere because of him is I'm literally at media day at the senior bowl and see our buddy Cecil Lammy 
is interviewing him. This is after Tim Tebow mania in Denver. And I'm like 20 yards away, just finished an interview with a Texas A&M wide receiver. Um, and I look over and they're both sitting in these folding chairs next to me, across from each other. And Russell Wilson literally bolts up out of his chair and like his hands go behind his hips, straight out, arms straight out, leaning forward. It looked like the South Park parody of the bro down that I once saw. I mean, he looked like he wanted to fight Cecil. And it was like for just a split second, like it wasn't longer than a second. And then he kind of, and Cecil stood up too, because he was like, why do you, you know, Cecil was like, it kind of reacted to Russell Wilson bolting out of his chair like that. And then you could tell Russell Wilson realized what he just did. And he just kind of like settled back into that easygoing smile veneer that he's got, you know, and it, and everyone saw him as this relaxed, like really on point, great people person thing. But when I saw that flash of like anger and he was pissed off and like I could tell and he hit it and then he hit it back. I was like, what was that about? So I walked, you know, at the end of the end of the media night, I asked Cecil, so what was that about? He said, you caught that? I'm like, yeah. I was like, I, I heard this guy's like really cool, calm and collective. And they talk about how great of a leader and people person he is. And he looked, he looked like he wanted to fight you. What'd you say to him? He goes, I just asked him how he'd feel about backing up Tim Tebow in Denver, you know? And he, and he did that. And, he, and I caught that he real, caught himself too. And then he just smiled and said, I don't plan on backing up anybody in the NFL. And to me, what that, that first thought was, I was like, wow, this kid's got some fire and he has some intensity about him and he has some real belief and the idea of him backing up a guy that he thought he was way better than felt like a slap in the face to him. And it was like watching Michael Corleone, like that moment where like you see the kid, he's like this well-mannered dude who's like well-educated and, and he's got everything going on right. From and he went he, up on Matt Waldman's draft board because of it. He did. I, I watched tape. I watched more tape of him. I went back and watched NC State tape. And because I watched the Wisconsin tape, but I'm like, okay, he's not bad, but he might be a developmental guy. And then I watched NC State tape. And I was like, this guy's an animal. Like, this guy was, I was more impressed with him with all the bullets firing and flying around and what the type of blitzes that he had to face and the type of solutions he had to make quickly and how he had to go off script more often. And I was like, that's the stuff. I saw that he could do all the stuff you want in a quarterback to do baseline at Wisconsin. Then I saw all the stuff that you want a quarterback to do when, when things go wrong. And I was like, how did this guy get out of the NC State? Like, I was, it was unbelievable. And I remember, and then I saw that part and I was like, I compared to Michael Corleone. I was like, he'll, he'll smile at you, but man, say the wrong thing and he'll rip your heart out. And, and that's the thing there that I think, for people just breaking into the business, right? Like, like my new scouts that come and join the draft Bible, they're all about the analysis. They're all about the scouting report. And then they don't want to do any background. They don't want to do any, you know, digging into the personality and the DNA. And it's like, the longer I've been involved in this process, the more I realize like, it's a fine line. When you get to the NFL, it's a fine line between a fringe guy, a 53 man roster guy, a practice yeah. squad guy. Like it, it's just like such a fine line that at the end of the day, you're really investing more in the person. Yeah. Then you are the talent. And like, again, like I, 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 I talked about it earlier today. Like 
when you're on the scouting trails and going back to building an NFL program, one guy that won't be on my roster is a guy that gives me a dead fish handshake. There you go. Now call me crazy, right? Like it's just a handshake. But like, if you can't look me in the eye and give me a firm handshake, even though I've broken my hand and you'll probably hurt it. If you squeeze it tight enough, I've had those handshakes too, <laughs> but I appreciate those kind. I said, man, yeah. okay. Like you're very full of confidence. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. But a little thing like a dead fish handshake, usually it accompanies like a, a, a looking down or not looking you in the eye. And I'm saying to myself, okay, this is not a leader of men. Yeah. I need 53 leaders on my <laughs> roster. Like this guy just isn't going to play for me. And it's such a little thing. But like to me, if I'm an NFL decision maker, you give me that dead fish handshake, you're off my board. Yeah. Or at the very least, even if they're not like an active leader, the fact that you're like confident enough in yourself to meet new people and that you're because you're going into an environment that's ultra competitive you have to believe in yourself and if you can't believe in yourself in situations where and it's a such and listen it can be a cultural bias difference thing it can be a socioeconomic background thing where all these things that happen in our country and how the world is that can mold you to feel like that everyone is against you and that you shouldn't trust that person, this 50 year old dude who's in front of you, you know, and, and I get all that, but you still have to have that kind of internal fire to go screw this guy. I don't know who he is. I'm going to be me and I'm going to be okay with what that is. And you, and that kind of shows up in the way that you interact with people. And I think that's one of the things we need to see, but this has been like, so much fun. I have one last question for you and we'll we'll cut this off. But give me a UDFA type candidate who you're not really, you may not be completely sold on. You think he, he might not even make a an active roster this year, but there's something about him that you watched. You know, we talked about on your show, Russ and I talked about the boring watches where you're like, I don't know, even know if this guy's even good enough to be in the league. But there's some guys who are kind of in between that where you see something and you go, there's something about this guy. Maybe he'll grow. And I and I would take a shot on him maybe with a final UDFA, you know, or put give him a tryout at least and see if he shows me a little more. Yeah, and I, I think the uh the linebacker Curry would have felt fell under that category. But I'll give you another guy, uh Felipe Franks. Because I watched the progression that a Logan Thomas made. Yeah. And so, like, you know, Felipe, come on in. You, you've been a, a, a big high school recruit. You've played for mega programs. Let's give you a shot at quarterback here. You'll, you'll probably go undrafted. You were at the Senior Bowl, but you'll probably go undrafted. We're not sure if you're a quarterback, but let's just try out because there's – there's some tools here that we might be able to work with. And like, if the quarterback position doesn't work out, like, why don't we try that Logan Thomas path to the NFL? And like, talk about a guy who's just completely reinvented. And I mean, how many years ago did Logan Thomas come out? And here yeah. he is like making plays left and right in the red zone. And it's like five years now, right? I, I mean, yeah. like, so to me, like Felipe Franks could be that guy. I like that. I like that. The guy for me is, Toledo wide receiver Isaiah McCoy. There's something about him. I don't know if he's quite quick or fast enough to 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 really be able to be a threat down the field as much as I think he had a pretty good pro day, better than what I saw on the field maybe. 
But there's something about the way he moves, the way he puts some moves together, um, the way he can catch the ball. He makes the first man miss a lot. And every time I watch him, I don't know why I get this vibe. I haven't pinpointed it yet. And, and again, it's a long way off from this guy. But when I watch him, I see something that I saw in a young Chad Johnson. And and I don't think he's, I think he's going to be, again, like a, a borderline roster fringe guy at best. But there's something about him that I would want to bring in and at least give him a shot. Because I think there's something up here with his game that can that, that more can come out of it. And, and when you come from a smaller program, sometimes you have more room to grow physically as a player because you're not getting the top-notch facilities and training that the, the Power Five can give you. You know, it's kind of, you know, it may not be the HBCUs where it's that big of a difference, but you know, it still may not be on the level of you know, some of the other bigger conferences. Well, Isaiah McCoy, you know, there's some buzz that he might be a seventh round flyer kind of prospect and you're not hearing too much, but because, uh, you know, here's a little known fact, John Bon Jovi's sister, Kathy Bon Jovi, uh, she used to be the director of communications at Temple. She is now at Kent State. So when I went and visited, oh, it's the Kent school, State. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Thank so, you. And so, like Isaiah McCoy was a guy. She was quick to point out, like, hey, there's a buzz around this guy. Like, you need to look into him. And then I went back and and you know touched base with some of my other scouts and like, they're like, yeah, like there's a buzz around him. So like, yeah, you're you're exactly right. And I think he might have done enough. Again, it's such a deep draft. And Matt, I think you would agree. Like, come day three. Beauty, I mean, beauty's always in the eye of the beholder, but this but, is just mm. an unorthodox draft because there was no com- combine. The, the the pro day numbers are like, hey, take them with a grain of salt type of thing. And so, like, it's really going to come down to what's your flavor of the week. And being a smaller draft pool, like we usually have over a 1,000 guys on the big board. This year we don't even have 600. Yeah. So, like, McCoy's a guy, like, yeah, he, he could slide into that day three, and he is a – lightning rod with the kent state flashes yeah absolutely i love it thank you for correcting me on that too because i was like i I'm, I'm always get toledo and kent state mixed up when i start thinking about um their jerseys when i look all at about that, but... that action exactly all that mag action and i and if i could give a last guy it would be damon hazelton who is with virginia tech came through from ball state was at virginia tech and now with missouri and I watched him against Alabama, and Alabama tried to intimidate him and tried to get him off his game and rough him up and try and and he by the end of the game they were committing penalties because he had gotten under their skin and he was getting open. I mean, he was getting open deep on these guys with he and he's been working with, um, he's been working with pros for a while. Like, and they were the ones that encouraged him to leave Ball State. And, and go to Virginia Tech because they're like, there's something there with you. Like you're, you've learned this position. You need to, you have pro potential. You need to get, he may not have the top speed, you know, but didn't he have good. a brother a couple of years back? Vidal. It, it was Vidal. Yeah. yeah the USC. Yeah. yeah. And, but this guy, he's big, he's physical. He makes clutch catches. He's good over the middle. Um, he has really good use of his hands and feet at the line of scrimmage against press. He's like refined for a young, for a young wide receiver. And I think that he could wind up a, a nice kind of possession guy in the NFL if he can continue to grow and get his shot. 
in a, in a camp, and I think he might. I, I there's some. He's one of my favorites. That you know, I before I watched all the receivers, I was thinking this guy might sneak into my top fifteen, top twenty. And then as this class got better and better from my purview of being able to see more and more, he he was just outside of that um, out of that top twenty. But in any other class, he would be he would have been a sleeper. I'd go late rounds. You know, round six or seven, you obviously got to get this guy because in four or five years, he could be a nice contributor. So, you know, good stuff. Listen, Rick, tell us, tell everybody where they can find just the 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 fabulousness of the NFL Draft Bible, where they can get it, all the details you want to share. Take the, take your time, man. No, I appreciate it. It's really, it's not hard. NFLDraftBible.com, we've got you covered there with, you know, the headquarters page is right there on the home site. We, you know, are working through the transitional process with the whole new website. So it's been a, it's been a fun kind of experience to get back into the daily content side of things because we, we kind of got away from that for a very long time and just did the publication. Um, but the publication is available at all access football.com. And so you can get the PDF download, uh, you can reserve the hard copy. You can go all access. And uh, I like to say unlock the magic. We've got the 2022 scouting reports and beyond. If you go all access to our virtual uh, scouting report there. But I think the best way is just to follow us. We're all across the social media outlets, but everything we do is always on Twitter. So if you just go at NFL draft Bible, you'll find everything we do, whether it's scouting, fantasy football we got a lot of Devi and dynasty analysts now doing doing some fantasy analysis but we've got live streams and podcasts and you know just a, a whole smorgasbord and special guests like matt waldman joining us on the morning show the state of football 9 a.m eastern weekdays monday through friday uh your new home for real football talk but it's just been an amazing journey it's been uh a labor of love as you know matt we don't we don't do this for the payday we do it for the love and the passion and and luckily enough like we're two of the very few in this industry who are able to keep the electricity on uh because of the nfl draft and it's just it blows my mind 55 million people tuned into this event last year i think the super bowl is like the only other biggest sporting event probably the world cup but just to think about that and to think about we're one of the few people that can make a living doing this it's just such an incredible uh honor and a privilege um you know all the people that came before us especially joel Bucksbaum and yeah uh howard balzer and, and 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 the druggery report and all those guys back store the, report, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, like all these guys that came before us that you know we wouldn't even be a blip on the radar if it wasn't for them oh without a doubt and you know listen you you heard it for this past hour and a half you know, and I obviously encourage you to go check out what Rick does and his team does. It's fantastic. And, you know, he's a guy you can see down to earth. And like like everybody else in this industry who's been able to make it, they work like the light bill might shut off than any day. Um, and when you have those moments, you never forget it. So it's, it's and I think that's what keeps the fire burning. Um, so on behalf of Rick, you know, Thank you guys for listening. Of course, 
You know the RSP is out and available. You can pick that up at mattwaldmanrsp.com or mattwaldman.com is the easiest way if you're a return um, reader and you just know where to go. Um, there's also the there's also a package now that's available for projections and rankings that does not include the RSP publications. It's a separate deal. But you know me from fantasy writing since 2003. If you know that that's also the thing that I do, well, you've asked me for about 10 years if I would do this, so I'm doing it now. So you can you can get that as well, and you'll have updates throughout the year. Um, but and I want to thank everybody also because we were able to give $4,000 to Darkness to Light um, already um, at this point of the year, and it is Child Abuse Prevention Month. Um, so it was sweet to be able to do that as our annual donation and more will probably be coming their way by year's end. Um, so thank you in, on behalf of that. And um, next up, in addition to this, I'll have Jay Moyer on later today, who I'm going to do a podcast with. It'll be an all running back show. And if you know, if you know Jay and Rick, if you don't know Jay yet, he is a he's a running back coach in a high school out in Oakland. And he used to do work for me, and now he's with Fantasy Astronauts, FF Astronauts, and they got their own draft guide coming out. But he's he's excellent with running back play. If you want to catch a guy who like breaks down running back tape really well, that dude's it. He and so we're gonna have an all all geek out session on running back later this afternoon. So thanks again for listening, and take it easy. <laughs>